This program is brought to you by SoundsTrue.com. At SoundsTrue.com, you can find hundreds of downloadable audio learning programs, plus books, music, videos, and online courses and events. At SoundsTrue.com, we think of ourselves as a trusted partner on the spiritual journey, offering diverse, in-depth, and life-changing wisdom. SoundsTrue.com. Many voices, one journey. You're listening to Insights at the Edge. Today, my guest is Latham Thomas. Latham Thomas is a wellness and lifestyle maven and founder of Mama Glow. Named one of Oprah Winfrey's Super Soul 100, she's been featured on The Dr. Oz Show, ABC News, Inside Edition, Fast Company, The Wall Street Journal Magazine, and The New York Daily News. She's the best-selling author of Mama Glow, and the book Own Your Glow. With Sounds True, Latham Thomas has created a new audio learning program called Beditations, guided meditations and rituals for rest and renewal, where she shows people how to reboot themselves with practices designed to help get grounded, present, and centered, sleep better, and recharge our physical, cognitive, and spiritual reserves. In this episode of Insights at the Edge, Latham and I spoke about the societal factors that work as obstacles to our self-care. We also talked about how important it is to expand our capacity to receive support and also draw our boundaries when necessary. And Latham gave us some radical suggestions on how to do this. We also talked about how listening to internal messages takes courage, and in Latham's words, how the universe rewards courage. We also talked about how all the places you've been taught to be afraid of, all the areas where people said you were too this or too that, to fill in the blank, are actually where you'll find what Latham calls your glow power how this power lies in going into our darkness to find our light. Here's my conversation with Latham Thomas. Latham, you're credited with leading a revolution in radical self-care and helping women reclaim their queendom. And this is where I wanted to start our conversation. And we'll begin with this first part, leading a revolution in radical self-care. Tell me what you mean by radical self-care. Well, first of all, I wanted just to thank you for having me on and for even diving into a discussion like this. Um, You know, I think that everything in our uh, modern culture turns us away from our bodies and um, away from this active listening to the intuition and understanding um, what our basic needs are. And I feel like most of the time we're subliminating those needs um, at the expense of our um, well-being. And self-care for me and what I believe um, the, the purpose for it is, is not just 
to um, take really great baths that you can post on Instagram, but to actually check in on a moment-to-moment basis uh, with yourself to understand what's the most important thing I can do right now for all that are involved, like myself, my child, my work, whatever it is that you have on your plate, um, looking inward to see what it is that's necessary so that you can act in um, from a place of uh, fullness and rather than a place where you're lacking resources. And so uh, most of where I, I see in our society you know, really with women and, you know, who I work with as a population, um, they're constantly running and going and pushing. And, you know, this, this idea of hustling, right, has become synonymous with success, with, um, you know, being, uh, you know, cool or, um, you know, proactive, like, you know, you're completing tasks, you know, or you're um, getting things done, you're checking things off your list, like there's all that, you know, there's a lot of movement, but not necessarily progress, right? And just because there's movement doesn't mean that there's progress. And I think that um, everyone is centered around doing too much. And so what I'm really asking people to do is reframe how we even look at success, reframe how we look at uh, process um, as integral to the outcome or output of what we do, and being more intentional in how we move through life and how we engage with everything that we do so that everything's not rushed, you know, Mm -hmm. Um, and also so that we feel uh, excited and connected and deeply fulfilled as we do this work. You know, if you're running yourself down, um, it really doesn't matter like what the outcome is because a lot of people who, you know, are perceived as really successful are really unhappy or really tired or unfulfilled because the only value they're putting um, into, uh, you know, their belief system is that which is connected to the output of what they do. And so um, I want us to move away from like what we do and really focus on who we are and who we're meant to become. And I think that's deeply connected to taking care of yourself, really mothering yourself and learning what do you need to thrive, you know, Um, just like we do with children or the plants. We have house plants that we take care of, that we water, right? And then our smartphones that we plug into the wall because we see that they're low on battery, but we're not looking to see like when we need to recharge, when we need to, you know, take time for ourselves. And it doesn't have to be just taking a bath at night. It's throughout your day, you know, really punctuating the day with, opportunities for self-renewal. I think that's really important for us to live, you know, through the lens of our best life. Now, you've said a lot, Latham, but what I want to dive into a bit more, you said that our society isn't moving in the direction, if you will, of supporting necessarily our radical self-care. And I'm curious to know more what's happening in your view at a societal level that's working against us, but also a second part here, 
What are the internal factors that keep women in particular from valuing and engaging in radical self-care? So I'd love to know about both the societal and the internal. Sure. I mean, I think that um, on a societal level, you know, our values are connected to like anything that's going to be, um, you know, any monetary value that we can attach to something um, will determine its worth, right? So uh, if we look at the things that women do that do not get, um, and men as well, that do not get uh, the, the adequate, mm-hmm. you know, um, support or even acknowledgement, like child rearing, sure. right, which is largely, you know, women, you know, unless you're a, um, a child care worker or a domestic worker, um, and you're not getting paid. And even those people are not getting paid properly for what they do to raise the next generation. Women in the home or stay at home fathers do not get, you know, paid leave or even compensated for the work that they do to raise the next generation. Um, we look at people who do work that's connected to, um, uh, um, taking care of people, whether it's caretakers in, you know, um, you know, homes or in schools or nursing homes, um, people who work with expecting new mothers, uh, people who do body work and healing arts. Um, largely, I mean, I would say, obviously, there's men who are in these fields as well, but the work is looked at as, um, you know, largely women-centric or female-centric work, right, taking care of other people. So it's undervalued. And so you often see people who do the most important work in the world um, who are, like, struggling, you know, really to survive because this work is undervalued by our society. So, when we look at um, the type of work that is valued, um, it's largely work that's um, really uh, focused on a lot of cognitive output and a lot of, um, you know, sort of beta, you know, brain wave mm-hmm. sort of um, focus. Sure. So it's really about like thinking and doing and, you know, rather than being and, um, and intuiting, right? So uh, I think that because of where we place our values, that's one reason why um, things are really askew. But another reason I think on a societal level is um, because there's been this really big push with, you know, the exposure of social media and a big trend towards entrepreneurship and leadership and this sort of um, fascination, right, with um, having your own and people who don't know where to place boundaries around when they're on and when they're off, right? And even people who are at the helms of companies really pushing this idea that working really hard, which we've seen, you know, uh, for, I would say, decades has been a mantra, like working hard and, you know, uh, for others to build something. But now we see people who want to work hard to build their own, but they still have this value system that they've inherited um, around 
uh, working to the bone, you know, like not stopping, like never stop, don't give it up, keep going, keep going. And so when you have this as a mantra, then it's really hard to say, well, where do I pause? Because there's no, um, you're not clocking out and going home, right? You're bringing the laptop into the bedroom and you're staying up late and you're putting the kids to bed and then, you know, whatever it is, right, that that's sort of like shaping the way that you um, you live your life. And so I think it's hard for people to shut off for women in particular, because we're, um, we're inundated with so many things. We're really the crux of community. And then usually um, the ones who have placed upon them the responsibility to take care of others, meet everyone's needs in the family, as well as, you know, um, their own um, nuclear family. And then uh, they usually have some sort of connections within aspects of their community, right? So there's so many responsibilities and so many things that need to be sort of uh, fixed or figured out before a woman can put attention on herself. But Instead, I'm asking us to think differently, not just put everybody's needs first and and take care of your checklist. I'm asking for us to actually take care of ourselves first so that we can have the energy um, and the frame of mind to address what's on the checklist, right? And meet everyone's needs as well as like the larger needs of our society and the world in, in whatever ways that you show up in the world. It's impossible without support. And it's not um, done well if we don't take care of ourselves. It's like, yes, you can do it. Can you do it well? No. You know, you do need really to um, to denote time and not just, you know, once a week, but when you feel like you know when your lows are, you know when you're your best, you know when you feel uh, depleted. And you can design your life around these periods where you know you have ebb and flow and create the right uh, supports for yourself, right? And so I'm just wanting us to think a little bit more radically about how we design our lives and not just going into a space that's designed, you know, especially like most workplaces, which are designed for men, right? For them to succeed, not really for us. We're trying to find our way and acclimate to structures that uphold um, patriarchy, but also that that we're trying to assimilate so that we can also buy into what society has taught us is the the dream, right? So it's really hard to to pursue that while trying to also maintain um, internal well-being and sort of spiritual footing as well as um, taking care of yourself. Those things seem in conflict based on the values that were, you know, uh, said from er early on in life. Mm -hmm. I'm with you, and I think you've really described the collective way that we're sort of going against the current when we commit to redefining success, valuing the process of our life, and taking care of ourselves. I think you've done a great job. Now, I want to talk about the internal obstacles, because I do think Mm. a lot of women, this is not a new idea. It's not a new idea that I need to take care of myself and not sort of white-knuckle it through and, you know, get to the point where I'm, you know, running on fumes and collapse. I get it, but I don't do it. 
I don't do it. I don't change. And, you know, you, you talk at a certain point that we have to meet our inner saboteur and be willing to face mm-hmm. this part of us that's not doing the things we know we need to do. So what are those internal right. obstacles? I mean, I think a lot of them come down to um, how we value ourselves, right? Like there's people who are fully confident, and I'm you know, speaking also about myself, not just, you know, what I've seen, but, you know, we all struggle with something internal around um, where where our limits lie, where our boundaries lie. Um, There is a basic human need to be seen, to be heard, and to belong. Part of belonging is, um, you know, having people like you, right? And I think there's this overwhelming need to be liked and not disappoint, right? So Mm -hmm. we start with that. And so when someone shows up and asks, oh, can you do this or that for me? The automatic, someone who's, who likes you or who loves you, asks you to do something, you want to be of service, right? And so that's our, that's our initial response is yes. And then once we unpack what it is that we were asked, the next feeling is um, sort of confusion or upset or how am I going to get out of this? But we made an agreement. Then we feel resentment. And so, because now we're locked into an agreement that we don't know how to get out of. So I think that you know, the internal conflicts lie with like this, like meeting this aspect of ourselves who really, you know, wants to say no, who wants to set boundaries, but isn't necessarily uh, feeling equipped to be able to draw those boundaries. Number one, I think um, another aspect is, you know, really, um, I feel like sometimes we're in conflict with what's possible, you know, for ourselves. So, um you know, I talk in the book about expanding your capacity to receive, right? So mm-hmm. many of us are really good at giving, right? We're so great at like pouring into other people and, you know, helping with this project and that, and let me be on this committee and this board and serve, you know, in this way and, you know, do the bake sale, whatever it is, right? We're very good. And then when it comes to someone asking us, well, what do you need right now? You, we could draw a blank, You know, it's like when someone asks you, what do you want for Christmas or your birthday? And you're like, oh, my God, I don't know. Right. It's like that. We don't even know what to say. And but we do know, but we're afraid to even ask. Right. Because we're programmed. No, you can't ask for help. Like, God forbid. Right. You can't ask for help. So there's this whole, you know, super heroine, um, which I believe is being shattered. And this this idea of of having to uphold this, you know, this cape like um, you know, uh, archetype of, of a superhero, um, you know, woman who's, who's like tackling everything on her own. Like we're, that's, we're dismantling that. But at the same time, we haven't figured out, um, I think really who's emerging from that, this went, this, that's dismantling and who are we putting on a pedestal? Like what's the version of myself that I'm going to elevate, right? That's going to um, no longer tolerate X, Y, and Z, that will no longer let this and this happen, will um, now support only these types of relationships and this type of work and these types of asks. And this is how I want people to support me. Like we haven't really gotten there yet. We figured out what we don't like, but not figured out what we want to um, embrace. And so I think that the internal conflicts are are just these, there's so many um, 
there, there's like the way that society functions and how we have to live in it. And also our primal needs for wanting to belong and wanting to be useful and of service, but also um, wanting people to help us and not really knowing how to how to um, get people to actually do things in a way that'll be helpful. Like we don't, I mean, I think we can in the workplace delegate. It's part of what many of us have to do, but in, in the home or in your personal lives or friendship, you know, circles, are you asking enough of the people around you when you need to feel supported? Right. So, so I think that it's like really, you know, um, being as committed as we are in so many aspects of our work lives, right. Where, where we can really, um, you know, where we're, where we're able to use a lot of these um, skills and bringing them actually into our personal lives, right. Where they really matter as well. Um, And, um, and then the other piece I think is boundaries. I think that we're seeing an emergence of, um, of conversation and dialogue around where boundaries begin and where they end um, transgression of boundaries and, and the various permutations of that and uh, where women stand, you know, and also the power of the voice, right? I think that if we realize that there's support when we speak up, if we realize that um, if we place a boundary and someone crosses it and we, and we speak out and we're supported in that, then we continue to feel comfortable to speak, right? But so for so long, we've been silenced. And so I think that there's, there's many facets to, um, to why we don't do certain things. And, and most of it is because of lack of support, not a lot of models that we see of success around modeling these um, principles that I'm speaking about. And also like no sense of safety. Like if I decide I'm not going to, I'm going to say no to this, like who's going to back me up. Right. Or if I say I can't do it right now, am I going to be ostracized? Like all these things. Right. And that goes, I mean, it can cross so many areas of, of a woman's life. So, um, so I think that those, all of those things feel conflicting for someone who's trying to navigate like where to fit in, some practices that'll, you know, help them feel better about themselves. And and it's not just, you know, like the things that we do, but it's just how we move through life, you know, with, with, like I said, the boundary piece, like sleep, um, you know, eating while exercising, spending time with friends and family, spending time in nature, like all of these things that you, that may feel good for you. Where are you, where are you placing them within the context of, of a dialogue that's internal, like we just spoke about, that has all these other things that you might have to weigh in. Um, I think that that's where it can be a challenge for women. But at the same time, I do believe that um, we have tools available to us to unpack like where these things are sitting inside that keep us from making the larger commitment and, um, and sticking to it. And I know that, um, you know, when we really want something, we're really good at um, making sure it gets done or making sure that we get it. And so it's, it comes down to um, going underneath the, the why, right? Not just, um, you know, I think sometimes we'll say, Oh, like, let's say some affirmations and just positive thinking. It's not just that, like you have to go underneath 
like, well, do I really believe I deserve to do this? You know, that I deserve time for myself. Like, am I worthy of this? Right. Mm -hmm. It's not just Mm -hmm. tell yourself you're worthy. Like where did the, where, where was your worthiness unearthed, you know, and how do we restore that so that you know that you, you do belong here in this moment. And this is a sacred pathway for your empowerment and for your um, sustainability. Mm-hmm. I think you're really touching on something very deep when you talk about a sense of knowing our own worth. When I think of receiving support, and as you were talking, I was thinking of people in my life and myself over the years, and I've watched, it's like, can that person receive? Can they receive mm. love and support? No. No. And that this is the obstacle to greater self-care. I mean, you have to be able to receive. Right. You do. Mm-hmm. And when you talked about, well, if you don't feel you know, worthy enough, you're not going to let, you're, you're going to have some kind of limit. Like, I can't receive any more support than this, any more pleasure, any more relaxation, any more, you know, I've hit my threshold. Mm-hmm. So let's say someone's in a situation like that where they're like, yeah, I I feel I can't receive more because I do sense I don't think I deserve it. How can Mm -hmm. they work? work, Because we're getting down into the root system, I think. Yeah. Yeah. And so, yeah, where our beliefs lie, right? And so um, I I have several um, different types of um, meditative exercises that I like people to that are that are with the body, but also with the mind, like written exercise, and then like sort of internalizing through the body to ask questions around um, the worthiness piece, because I think that's so important. Um, And also, I think that, you know, um, trying things that uh, are uncomfortable, but that makes sense for you in a time where you can practice it and get better at it as you go. And what I mean by that is um, I used to have a really hard time telling people no or, um, you know, sort of just taking on way too much, right? And so one of the ways that I uh, started to work on this was um, in the time that I knew I would feel most vulnerable, most, you know, kind of depleted is when I would set the boundaries. And um, I chose this period around my cycle. And so I would map out uh, like the five to seven days in red on the calendar. And in that time frame, I don't care what came up, I would say no. So even if it was like, can you can I come over by borrow a cup of sugar? Like whatever it is, right? They like I would just say no. And um and that was really liberating. It was very challenging at first because it's like for a lot of the things that you want to do may fall in that window. And then you learn, wait a minute, I can design my life, right? I can choose to have this meeting in when I'm ovulating or I can have this meeting, you know, when I emerge from, you know, the red tent, so to speak, not in the midst of when I'm bleeding and when my body's working really hard and when I should be dreaming and resting and eating and hydrating, not, and not running around New York city, you know, trying to do everything that I would do, um, you know, while I'm on my cycle. So I, I started to, 
uh, ritualize that practice of um, of self care and and learning about boundaries. And I already sensed in myself because I knew the first two days of my cycle are when I'm more tired, just naturally, right? And so I just wanted to use because it was easier to use work with where my body was to practice this because it's easier to say no if you feel no, right? But it's harder to do if you're like, if it's like 90 degrees and sunny and you're on a beach and, you know, it's like, yeah, let's go do it. Like you feel really relaxed to say no. I mean, it's harder to say no when everything feels like, you know, like you can't see, um, you can't foresee that you don't want to do this thing when everything around you, um, you know, says yes. Right. But Mm -hmm. I, I framed that. And what I found was it was profound because number one, it, it taught a lot of people around me where I began and where I ended and, and what that meant for what they could ask of me, what that meant for, you know, my expectations of them and what that meant for how I felt about myself. And I didn't make up excuses. At first I would make up a thing about why. And then I stopped and I was like, you know what? No. And I'm like, you know, thank you so much for thinking of me, but I'm going to pass or whatever it was. And people were like, oh, you know, and it just kind of, you know, okay, cool. Like they, they moved on. I was terrified thinking that people would dislike me or this or they would, and no, they just move on. And so you learn that it's not really about you. What it is, is that if you've poised yourself to be this great leader who gets things done and who doesn't say no and who would take on everything, then people will use you like that. They'll use you because you're teaching them how you want to be used. You're teaching them how they should treat you um, through your own actions, right? So people learned from by my example how to treat me, right? So I had to, I had to do the work um, to reframe um, that narrative. And then what I found, Tammy, was like, as you do this, you can refine and refine and refine. So then it was like, okay, well, now that I am showing people where my boundaries lie, let me now look at like where else I sometimes feel, um, you know, stifled. And then I found that like when people would, um, you know, ask me for meetings or certain things that I'm like, oof, this doesn't feel good. And I would force myself to do certain things. Then I learned, okay, here's where I feel best you know, a phone call or, you know, um, to, to understand what's being asked of me before I sit down in a meeting. Cause I didn't like feeling like I was being cornered or forced into some sort of, you know, um, discussion because I'm walking into something without knowing really like what everyone's intention was. So I set up everything like in a way that felt good for me first. Right. So I think it really comes down to, you know, even if you don't feel like you deserve it, like, you know, the things that make you feel most safe and most secure, right? And so why don't you move from that place of like, what do I need to really thrive? So I know that I really like information. So I know what I'm getting into if I'm going to say yes or no to something. I know that I need you know, um, like a calendar or I know whatever the things are, right? Like figure out what you need so that as you start to map out for yourself, this new system that you're going to operate within that supports, you know, um, you know, self-care 
that you have everything you need. Just like if we're going to go running together, you know, I'm going to have sneakers. I'm going to have my little leggings. I'm going to have a bottle of water. I'm going to have a stopwatch. Like I'm going to have the things that are necessary to do that type of activity. So we need to have like sort of like an inner checklist of like what's necessary for us, you know, to, to decide whether this, this um, request gets filtered through or whether this, um, you know, activity or this person or this, whatever it is, right. Gets to fold into your life. And once you develop criteria, then it's, it's really, it becomes clear to you, like, no, this is not fit at all, right? And the last thing I would say, which is a very simple barometer, is whether it tires you or inspires you. You can put things very easily into two categories, right? Like, does this feel good and make me want to do backflips? And is it exciting? Or does this, like, make me need a cup of coffee? You know what I mean? Or do I feel just like, ugh, like this isn't the drag, right? everything falls in one or the other. So you can sense in your body if you feel excitement and you can sense in your body if you feel languish, you know? So you have to also check in with the body, not just with the mind and do like a list of pros and cons, but check in with the body and, you know, and asking yourself questions and then feeling what comes up, you know, like feeling the, or once a request comes, feel the knot in your belly, which is no, you know what I mean? Or feel the little butterflies from, you know, flying information if it's yes, right? So I think we have to use everything that's available to us. But what we trust most, I think, um, you know, as people sharpen their intuition and get more comfortable with using it, I think a lot of these other um, practices can help us strengthen that pathway um, until we get to a place where we can really just trust the voice. You're listening to Insights at the Edge, produced by Sounds True. We welcome you to learn more about our collection of more than a thousand learning programs and receive three free gifts just for visiting us. Go to SoundsTrue.com backslash free. That's SoundsTrue.com backslash free. And now, back to Insights at the Edge. Latham, I'd love for our listeners to know a bit more about your own personal journey to being the empowered queen that you are helping other women, in your words, reclaim their queendom. Mm. I know that you're a birth doula and yes. you know, people refer to you as the glow maven, helping women <laughs> glow from the inside out. But tell me a little bit about your own journey and what you had to go through. Yeah, I mean, I grew up in... California and was exposed to uh, a lot of life cycles. I, I um, grew up where we grew a lot of vegetables, um, a lot of flowering plants were just like around us at all times. And I studied with this master herbalist um, at an early age. And so I was really fascinated with um, life cycles and plant systems, botany and things of that nature. And so 
um, that really shaped kind of the rudiments of my um, uh, childhood interests that would shape up later in, or show up later in my life. And um, at the time, too, when I was four, my mom was pregnant, my great aunt was pregnant, and then my mom's sister-in-law, so my aunt, was pregnant all at the same time. And I was watching how these women um, would just navigate pregnancy. And as a four-year-old, it's all very surreal and cool and fascinating, Um you know, as you're watching this happen, my mom was really keen on making sure that I understood um, the anatomy. And so she taught me everything about anatomy when I was really young. And so I I knew everything about uh, the body and how the baby was going to be born. And, um, and that would obviously show up later in life too. My cousin and I would stuff um, Cabbage Patch dolls under our shirts and deliver each other's babies. And uh, my mom reminded me of that. And I was like, oh, yeah, that's probably where this all came from. But um, that's forward. What I think imprinted me um, the most was was those two experiences that I shared of um, witnessing these women in their um, most powerful but also most vulnerable and knowing that inside me that there was something that felt a tether and connection to uh, that process. So I went to um, an ashram when, let's see, I was, I don't know, I was, I can't remember how many years ago this is now, but um, like a decade or so. And I, um, I go to this ashram and it was going to be my birthday and on the third day after my birthday, there was a Vedic astrologer who um, asked to have a reading with me. They did a birthday puja ceremony where they did a blessing and um, there was a reading that was also to, to occur. And um, so I go for the reading and in the reading, um, what was revealed were many numbers, which I wrote down and also Um, a few messages which I could make out in uh, English. And then there was one that was very clear that I will never forget. And uh, the man said to me, uh, you're supposed to mother the mother. And I was like, huh, I'm kind of already doing that. And I tried to explain to him what I did. And he was like, yeah, but it's deeper than what you're doing, but this is what you're supposed to be doing. And I had been told for years by people like, oh, I'd love for you to be my doula. You should be a doula. And I was resistant to that. I was really resistant um, for many reasons, but I I felt like I was doing a really great job of hand-holding women um, during my prenatal yoga classes and through nutrition work and other ways. But I didn't feel that I was supposed to be a doula. And so, but I kept getting the call, right? And so, the call comes in many ways, right? And in many forms. And uh, this one though, when it came, um, there was, there wasn't a resistance, but there was still like a, I was listening, but I wasn't like jumping in, right? It was like, I was aware, but I wasn't a hundred percent there yet. So I remember coming home and I don't remember filling out this application for a fellowship, but I did. 
And um, so I think I just channeled the answers. I don't recall writing. I don't recall. And I know that I wrote it in handwriting because this is back when there was no um, people didn't like type their computer answers and, you know, facts or not facts, but um, people faxed back then. They weren't like doing PDF email scans and things. So it, I remember it was like definitely a meticulous process because when I saw the application afterwards, I knew it was my handwriting, but I didn't even recall filling it out. So um, I checked my email one day. Um, and again, this was back when people barely checked email. And I opened the email and I see um, this thing that says you've been accepted to this doula fellowship program. And I was like, huh. And I look at the date and the date corresponded to a date that he had given me hmm. in the reading. And so I was like, okay. And I just took that moment and I took some deep breaths and I felt in every area of my body tingling. And I just sat still with it. And I said, yes. I said, okay, yes. Okay. Yes. Yes. Okay. I got it. Yes. The answer is yes. And that's all I said. And then I, I proceeded and I was like, I have to stay on mission because I'm being pulled in this direction for a reason. And I'm not going to ask any more questions. I'm going to obey and I'm going to allow spirit to order my steps. And I'm going to trust that all that I've done leading up to this moment has prepared me for where I'm heading. And I'm just going to continue and trust. And I think that so it's so hard to do that if you don't feel, um, you know, confident in who you are and if you don't feel, and I don't think I felt like a hundred percent confident in who I was necessarily, but I felt so strongly the call. I felt so strongly that I was being pulled in the direction for purpose that I, that I answered. And so sometimes like these, these messages come to us um, and they come faintly and they get louder and louder and they come through people or through signs and there's all kinds of, you know, omens, but, um, but listening is, um, is, is a gift. And, um, and when you listen and take action on your listening, right. You can, you might open up. And I, I believe what opens up for you is, um, you know, bigger than what you could have ever imagined. And for me, it was a huge lesson in trust and in faith. And, you know, our business transformed and boomed. And it was like, I've served hundreds of women and it's been incredible, but only because I listened. I could have completely gone the other direction. And so I believe that, you know, part of like, you know, owning your glow is tapping into that, one part ancestral wisdom and, you know, ethereal energy that makes up the nexus of who you are. And also this, you know, um, the spirit that kind of weaves in and out of your life to also gently guide you when it's time to step in and push you in a different direction. Right. So I think that that for me was critical in, in getting to where I am and people ask like, Oh, how did you do this? How did you do that? I'm like, I don't think I did anything so much as I just like allowed myself to become, you know, I just, 
I, I didn't force in a particular direction. I just kind of took one foot in front of the other. And, it, and then I just was like, oh, this is okay. This is where I am. So, you know, it wasn't like planned. It wasn't like mapped out. I didn't do this whole flow chart of like where I'm going to be in five years. And I think people get really caught up in those things when really, if you do all that with your head, but not with your heart, you know what I mean? And you don't allow space for magic. Um, you don't know where you're going to end up, you know? So, so I think part of, part of my journey has really been about, um, you know, surrender and, and softening and opening. And obviously that's such a huge through line because of the work that I do with women is about surrender, softening and opening, right. To, to give um, rise to new life. Right. So I think that those have been critical in my own personal journey and, um, and being able to translate that into, um, a way that is digestible for women who are really tightly wound and, and afraid and, and feel like they can't do something, but need to hear it in a different way or need to have someone hold their hand or, you know, lay on hands and look them in the eye and let them know, like, you don't have to do it alone. Um, I think a huge piece of what our work is about is, is women not feeling like they have to do it alone and, and allowing them to be witnessed as they transform um, along the journey. Now, there, there's one piece here, if you will. You know, you talked about listening and then taking action and how that was mm-hmm. so important for you. And then you also previously talked about what it was like in terms of extreme self-care, marking out a five to seven day period in your calendar and, you know, having mm-hmm. taking that risk that if you said no to people that they'd still love you and the world wasn't going to, you know, dissolve uh, in front of you, that everything <laughs> would be okay. Right. And it's this taking the risk part that I want to underscore and have you comment on. Because it's mm-hmm. one thing to listen, and, and I'm imagining the person who's listening to our conversation right now. And they mm-hmm. know there's some boundary they need to draw, or that there's something they yep. need to step into, some invitation that's niggling at them, and, and they know it's time mm-hmm. to take action. Mm-hmm. But it's going to be a risk if they take action in some way. That's right. So talk some about that yeah. courage to take the risk you know you need to take. Yeah, well, I believe that the universe rewards courage, you know, so like you're not going to be met with um, it might be packaged in a negative response if you place all of your, you know, eggs in the basket of um, the response or the emotional um, reaction of someone else. But if you place what you value on how you feel and what's going to make you feel most fulfilled and most supported when you say yes or no, or when you delineate um, boundaries or when you, you know, whatever it is that sort of on your plate in this moment, when you do that thing, um, your scorecard for what's valuable lies in um, in your hands, not in the hands of the other person or the people or the entity, right? It's not about what feels good for them. It's about what feels good for you. So um, you taking those steps um, and even 
in the face of fear, right? So it's not about like dissolving fear and getting over. People really get caught up in like, oh, I got to get over this fear. No, you just have to like move with it and dance with it and face it and see it and acknowledge that it's in the room. But you also have to um, use the fear as fuel. Like don't let it stifle you. It's never a good excuse to not do something because you're afraid, you know? And um, my son teaches me that. I see that in children. Like, you know, they're, <laughs> they're our greatest teachers, you know? Um, I, I think that, you know, this, the becoming risk-friendly, I think is an important, uh, um, an important aspect of our personal growth. It, it, it can um, permeate in every aspect of our lives to sort of meet at the edge, like your, the risks that you take are really at your growing edge, right? So when you're at the edge of where you feel like your limits go, at the end of that cliff is, is risk. And jumping across, right, is, you know, where, like, where risk and fear meet. And when you get to the other side, you overcome, right? And that, that fear that you had diminishes and diminishes and diminishes each time you go across a boundary or you go across a drawbridge, you know, where you were like, holding on to a fear so tightly that it stifled your ability to make a decision that was congruent with where you were headed, right? Every time that we make decisive action around these, um, around what makes us afraid and towards what it is that we desire and what we know we deserve, um, that that fear dissolves. It doesn't go away, but it dissolves. And so, um, and what you'll find is the things that you felt terrified to do, um, when you look back as you maybe, you know, how I do it, I document, I journal, I do reflections. And so when I look back like three, four or five years, 10 years, I see things that I'm like, Oh my God. Like I remember like being terrified of that. Or I remember not believing I could do that or have that or be that, like whatever it was I was writing. And now I could see where I am and there's a different, like I've been um, initiated into a different set of challenges, right? And so really, um, I think that all the things that show up in our lives, like allow us an opportunity to grow. So whatever is like, you know, nibbling at your heels, you know, and like, you know, making you nervous or afraid or feel like you can't take action is placed there so that you can overcome it to get to the next stage, to get to the next level of your growth so that you can meet what's supposed to be upon your journey, like where you're supposed to be headed next. Um, but you got to like allow yourself to, um, to, to defeat it, to get past it. Right. And so, yeah, I think, yeah, we all know we should do certain things, but yeah, the fear sometimes is enough to get us to not do it. And so that's why I believe that like a circle 
a sister circle of support, whether it's women or friends, um, it doesn't have to be just women, um, who support you, who believe in you, who cheerlead for you, who can help cheer, cheer you on when you're afraid to do something. You have a buddy that you can call right before you ask for that raise or right before you break up with that person or right before you, you know, whatever it is that you have to do, um, that you have someone who can listen to you, you know, that's not judgmental, um, where you have a really strong uh, spiritual practice or one that you're at least developing where there's self-reflective time that you can turn inward and sort of listen to those whispers that are like, you know, becoming stronger and orient yourself around what, steps you want to take based on what reveals itself to you in your meditation or in your dreams or in your journaling, you know, whatever it is that you're doing, like let all these tools become like weapons of consciousness that help you to destruct um, and deconstruct these fears and these things that are standing in your way, you know, of taking risk because risk is, I mean, we take risk every day. We wake up and we get out of bed and we're thwarted with, I mean, like if you really want to think about it, that everything's a risk that we do, right? Like eating is a risk, like breathing, like there's anything can happen, but we have faith, right? That we're going to wake up tomorrow. We just do like, we're not, we have faith that we're going to wake up. Like, why don't we have, we have faith that the sun's going to come up and that at night it'll set. Why don't we have faith that we can do this thing that it seems impossible in this moment, but why don't we have faith that we can do it, right? So I think that, you know, we, we have to put things in perspective, but we also have to, you know, activate, you know, the glow power, like these superpowers that are inside of us to work in our favor and, and start to move um, even when it's a, a scary idea, still move towards um, taking steps, even if they're baby steps, so that as we get more comfortable, the things that have been really challenging for us to do become easier as we, um, you know, little by little, you know, start to chip away at whatever it is that's um, causing us that great fear. Mm-hmm. Now, it's interesting that you you brought up our glow power. There's a quote from your work that I quite like that I wrote down here. All the places you've been taught to be afraid of are where you find your glow power. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, I love that quote, too, because I believe that, you know, it's in the darkness right? It's in the places that are tucked away. You know, when you're young, you're told, oh, don't go here. Don't go down that street. Don't go in the attic. Don't, you know, all these places that you're like, wait, why can't I go there? What's there, you know, or what's in the dark that's so scary, right? Um, You know, when you're little, even you're scared to look under the bed or you're scared of what's in the closet when you go to sleep. There's all these things that are um, associated with darkness, but also associated with aspects of ourselves that are tucked away, that we learn to hide. Um, and a lot of our superpowers lie in the places that we tuck away. And um, especially with women, I think that at an early age, we learn to disassociate with these parts of ourselves that people think are 
too much or too this, whatever it's, you know, too blank is what we tuck away, right? Oh, you're too loud or you're too bossy or you're too, whatever those things are, we make sure to compartmentalize, throw it in a box, store it away for nobody to find. And it's actually in that you're too much, you know, box is inside of that box that you've tucked away is your power. There's a lot of power in that aspect of yourself that is hard for people to see or hard for people to accept. And when we, when we reclaim it, when we go back and, well, why is it that people said I was so bossy? Why is it that people said I was too loud? Why is it, you know, like what made them uncomfortable um, are aspects of, you know, feminine power that are like totally under celebrated. Right. And so I think that um, when we, when we look at like where we're shut off and what we've locked away and start to like kind of, um, almost like go in the attic and open up all these boxes and, and reveal like what's been sort of, you know, getting dusty and cobwebby and stuck away and actually let these aspects of ourselves out. You know, we find that there are uniquely uh, feminine and uniquely um, powerful attributes that have been, um, you know, that we've been, denied access to and that we can use in our favor if we learn how to integrate them. And, um, and also when we explore these hidden areas of, you know, I mean, even like when we look at the female body, for instance, we're told that the, that, I mean, every day we get messages that there's something wrong with our bodies, right? That, oh, you're too this or you're too fat or you're too skinny or, you know, like unsanitary, like all these things that we hear about our bodies. There's commercials and products and services being sold to us because something's wrong with us is what we're being told. Like our bodies are um, basically an accident waiting to happen. They're flawed. This is what we're, this is what we learn, Right. So if that's the message, right, it's like, you know, what, what is the foundation for young girls and for women, you know, to feel empowered or feel even connected to their bodies when everything that we're told outside is, um, is negative. And so in a place that we live now in this, in this time, you know, loving yourself is already a radical act. Taking care of yourself obviously is one, you know, in, in the, a culture that we live in like this, but also having maps and visuals that model something different um, is also very powerful. And I think that we see that with um, Instagram, for instance, you can find all of these through social media, all of these beautiful images and messages that say the opposite of what we've been taught. And so I think that gives me a lot of hope that there are a lot of women forming communities around dismantling these messages and finding power, especially in these deep, dark places that we've been told to um, disassociate from. And that gives me hope. Latham, in your own life, where were you supposedly to fill in the blank? Um, 
I think that, you know, for me, I talk about it later in the book, but, you know, too dark or too, you know, I come from a African-American family and there's all different types of uh, range of the color in my family. My mom's very fair skinned and my sister was too. And, and so I was, you know, really brown. And I remember getting messages even within like my father's side of the family that I was too dark or even in my um, community growing up, whether it was in the African-American community or just being exposed to like a larger uh, community of people um, growing up in Oakland where there was like, you know, messages about, um, you know, beauty and I, and beauty ideals that I didn't fit into. And so I remember growing up and my mom would try to find dolls for me that looked like me. And she, it was really hard in the eighties to do that. And, um, I remember, you know, not feeling beautiful and not thinking that I was beautiful. Um, you know, I don't remember how young I was when I started thinking that, but I remember being young and, um, and it's not uncommon as we know, like so many young girls walk around thinking this. And so, um, it wasn't until I, um, went to college for the first time, actually I would come to New York and, uh, the East coast of my father, uh, in the summer times. Um, and I would see like my cousins and, and all these people on the, on the East coast, Again, that's completely different a way of thinking uh, that valued brown skin people. Like it was just they had a different, you know, point of view. And when I moved to New York, that was the first time I ever realized that I was in a place where there wasn't this like, um, you know, this type of skin is better than that type of skin. It was the first time when I was like 18 where people were actually like, um, would say things like that I was beautiful. And I was like, what, you know? So I, I think that, you know, from a, from a, a lens of beauty being like an inside job, I think my mom who did her very best to make sure that all of us felt loved and, and beautiful and, you know, um, embodied, you know what I mean? Uh, mm-hmm. she did her best, but I think that there were just things that slipped through, you know, like I was exposed to dialogue and messages and, and people and teasing and things like that. Um, you know, I, I was a really great athlete and, um, I remember, uh, you know, being, um, like a, not like a tomboy, but just really like really great at sports. And so I think that, you know, sometimes, uh, when women or girls are really competitive and they make boys feel uncomfortable or men feel uncomfortable because they're capable. And so I remember that as well. Like when I got into athletics, being um, a really great competitor, whether it's track and field or field hockey or soccer, I remember the sort of dialogue around you think you're too good or you think you're, and I was like, well, I think you think I am (laughs) because that's why you're, you know, upset. But like, I can't help that I'm like really great at sports. Right. So I remember being like, well, why, why do they like on the one hand want you to be really good, but the other hand, they don't want you to be too good because you make these people uncomfortable. So I remember that too, of like the kind of 
the have, having to vacillate and dance between these boundaries of like, you know, making everyone else comfortable. Right. So, so I think that that's something that all women really face, right? Like that there's, you know, all people really, but, but I think there's, there's this level of like kind of switching, you know, um, code, right? Like as you're moving through different settings to make sure that you feel, um, comfortable or that the people around you feel comfortable. I remember, you know, having to overcompensate for other people's comfort a lot, Mm -hmm. right? Because of my, like, oh, I was good at this and this person's upset and I, you know what I mean? That kind of thing. Like you end up having to, um, do you hide your glow, hide your light, hide your glow. Exactly. You have to like dim it. Right. And then at the same time as dimming the lights, you have to figure out like, you know, who's, who is it safe to show who you really are too, right? Like who really can receive me, right? And so that's a challenge when you feel like you should just be able to be on, but you got to cut out the lights every now and again. So that I think um, is something that a lot of women have to deal with and especially young girls, it starts early where they start overcompensating for their talents or their, you know, unique abilities, um, their intelligence, whatever it is, um, at the expense of others around them. And usually it's, you know, for the comfort of, you know, boys in the classroom or, you know, other things like that. So, um, I think at an early age, I saw that stuff and it takes, you know, time to unwind those, those things that occur and really see them for what they are and use the lessons to, to, um, to reference when you're in, in your adult life and see yourself acting in ways that like, you know, were um, imprinted when you were younger, you know, like at the point where we're doing this work and we're engaging in communities, you know, like, like yours and, and listening to you know podcasts and reading books. And it's like, at a certain point, you got to like, not just listen in and tune in, but now let's like really, check our internal status and figure out like how we can offload some of this stuff we've been carrying for too long and how we can transform some of these patterns that we've developed because they're not going to be of service like at this stage in our life and where we're headed. And so I think that, um, you know, for, for me, that's been a commitment is to, to daily show up and, and kind of unwind um, any of the things and, and unweave the things that may have, um, you know, kind of slipped through the cracks and challenge myself on a regular basis, but also um, challenge the people around me, like my community, the women I serve, right? And, um, and also be an example. I have a son, right? So I want to be an example to him also of how to love yourself and take care of yourself and, and really like, you know, be strong with your boundaries and firm with your, with your um, belief system and, and, and really defend what it is that you stand for. Um, We have to feel like that's our birthright because it is. Latham, Mark, conversation's coming to an end, but before we close, you made a new audio teaching program with Sounds True on what you call beditations. And I thought to myself, yes. oh, great, I can meditate in bed. I'm definitely interested in beditations. I love <laughs> bed. So tell our listeners just a little bit about beditations. 
I'm so excited about meditations. Um, so it's an audio program that we designed to, on the A side, really help you to, um, you know, relax and restore yourself. And on the B side, really help you to sleep. Um, I've worked with so many women and, and have seen how uh, people have trouble sleeping or have trouble relaxing and, and really um, having restorative rest. And so this uh, program is designed to help us um, get to, you know, uh, explore some of the root causes as to why we're not getting good sleep, but also um, have practical um uh, solutions to how we can do better and um, without judging ourselves, without having to have, you know, all the accoutrement and all the, you know, uh, props and everything that you think that you need. You don't need anything. You just need your bed. You just need a soft place to lie down, whether that's the bed or the floor or the couch, wherever you feel most comfortable. And, um, and you just need to turn it on and show up for yourself. So, you know, I think that's most important. Uh, there's so many, um, there's so many, I think, challenges for people who would like to start a meditation practice who feel like, oh, I don't know if I can do it. I can't be still. I can't sit up. My hips are tight. Like all these things that I hear people say. And then when you say, well, you don't have to do anything but lie down, there's no resistance, right? Like everyone can do that pretty much, even if they're propped up or, you know, even people who are who are ill can do this. You know, you don't have to be able-bodied to do this. So um, I, I really wanted to democratize the experience for people so that it wasn't one that um, that met resistance. And so right now we're super excited for it to come out because um, I, I would love to see the reaction people have um you know, wherever they are in life, how, how it supports them. And I'm just so thrilled because I love Sounds True and working with the team there. It's been amazing. And um, it's going to be a sleepy time. <laughs> well, and certainly extreme self-care in terms of getting enough rest. I mean, it's an obvious connection there that we have to be mm-hmm. well-rested if we're going to feel well-resourced. That's right. Mm-hmm. Latham, I have so enjoyed talking with you. What an inspiring, straightforward human you are. Thank you so much. Oh my God, Timmy, thank you so much. It's been a pleasure. And thank you for these incredibly deep questions. I love questions that might go under the surface. I've been speaking with Latham Thomas. She's the author of the book, Own Your Glow. A Soulful Guide to Luminous Living and Crowning the Queen Within, and a new audio program from Sounds True called Beditations. Thanks, everyone, for listening. SoundsTrue.com, many voices, one journey.